Awesome. Frank, good morning, dude. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Doing real good. Just kind of getting on the end of a cold, a little cough my daughter got from uh, daycare. So, uh, But other than that, feeling good. Well, you sound good. So let's do this thing. You ready? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, welcome this week to the Hot Isle. It's uh, episode number 41. And um, I am Brian Carpenter and with me... Brent Piatti. Good morning. Brent. Awesome. Okay, let's do this thing. I'm really excited, and yet I'm completely confused. Um, the goal of this week's show is fairly self-serving, and actually, um, we're going to be, we joke all the time about not really understanding our topic. We're telling the truth this time, okay? So um, we keep hearing about this serverless thing, and there's a bunch of different names for it. We can get into that as well, and we really wanted to know more. Uh, luckily, one of our former guests gave us a great introduction and um, you guys get to learn along with us, right? So all of the listeners, all seven of you, are going to learn what we have to learn about as far as serverless. Yeah, and, and, and also this is actually a topic from one of our listeners. So we're happy that we were able to uh, accommodate them. And uh, again, keep those, keep those inputs coming in so we can find great topics for you guys out there. Yeah, plug. Okay, so let's do this thing. With us this week, we have Eric Windish. Did I do it right? Yep. Awesome. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hi. <laughs> Thanks so, for having me. Yeah. So we have, uh, so Eric, you're what we, when we looked you up, it says you're the founder and CEO of IOPipe. Is that a correct title for the week? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, it is. Awesome. And so tell us, you know, real quick, just tell us what IOPipe is, you know, kind of give us the skinny on IOPipe. You know, we didn't, I'd never heard of it until I, I was introduced to you. So uh, tell me, you know, give me the down low on IOPipe, please. Sure. So uh, IOPipe is a platform for developers to uh, build, share, uh, and run their serverless applications. So we provide uh, you know, per-function uh, downloads and sharing um, and metrics analytics, uh, you know, uh, lifecycle management for serverless applications. Um, we actually are a runtime uh, I, we look at ourselves as a runtime that runs inside of things like Amazon Lambda, uh, Google Cloud Functions, Azure Functions. So um, a lot of the other serverless tools are looking for uh, solutions around um, Lambda. And we're actually seeing ourselves as being uh, more of infrastructure inside of Lambda. Interesting. So... You're, today, are you are you solely based on Lambda itself? And we'll kind of get into what Lambda is and those kind of things. Are you solely based on Lambda itself, or is that the starting point or the jumping off point of other things? Or are there other things outside of Lambda that you're also doing that people need? Yeah, so um, that's such a great question. So what's unique about IOPipe, because we are infrastructure that runs inside of Lambda, um, we are fairly independent, right? It's it's a run anywhere runtime. You can run uh, IOPipe functions. You can embed IOPipe inside of a traditional application. Uh, you can run it on an IoT device. You can run it inside of Lambda. Uh, because it's we're making it easier for developers to ship and run their code anywhere, um, no matter where that is. So you can run it inside of a Docker container, um, those IoT devices. Uh, anywhere you can run code, you can run IOPipe code. Interesting. Well, that, we're going to get in deeper in there, and there's so many things. We're going to have to... Basically, we're going to have to hit this subject at all sides and kind of give it a body and kind of show what it is and what it isn't. I think it's the easiest way to define it for, for us. Um, but you mentioned something, and we're going to kind of go through some other things. So you, you recently, you're, you're formerly of Docker fame, right? So you were a software and security engineer of Docker. Um, and you know, there, we're, we're, very, we're very curious about that. And then before that, cloud scaling, um, which kind of hits close to home here, um, doing some OpenStack things. So you, and there's a couple of things, but you have a long, rich developer history, right? So why cloud scaling, why Docker, and kind of what did, what did you learn there that you're applying now at IOPipe? Sure, so, um, so I started with, uh, you know, when I started my career, I got into managed hosting and I saw a lot of problems in that space and that was, relatively early in managed hosting uh, back in uh, 2001. Um, and I just saw so many issues with how we're building and running applications, you know, web applications, 
uh, and doing hosting that I felt that it could be so much better, more secure, better automated. We can start doing things like uh, utility-based billing and said, okay, I'm going to go start my own company to do these things. Um, and I did. And I ran that. The company was grokdus.net. And uh, we had another brand, VPS Village, that was kind of our bread and butter. And uh, I did that until 2011, uh, 2012, around there. Uh, there was a little a small overlap with cloud scaling um, as I was kind of, you know, handling the exit. Uh, but, you know, I, I saw this opportunity to help other people build these clouds to apply the lessons that I learned from actually having done this cloud thing for uh, 10 years. And... So I, I joined up uh, with you know Randy Bias and uh, you know the other crew at Cloud Scaling uh, to make that happen. And uh, I spent some time going to Korea uh, and doing some consult. Uh, you know, Cloud Scaling had contracts in Korea at the time, and that's actually how I met my uh, co-founder uh, Adam Johnson, uh, who was previously in Mitocora. And yeah, um, and then at some point, you know, I, I decided that I wanted to move on and. You know, Docker seemed like it was a you know a really compelling opportunity. This was in uh, I joined in January 2014. I started the conversation uh, you know sometime around uh, September or October, um, and you know so I was at Docker for about two years. And uh, yeah, you know again, you know I felt like I had this deep infrastructure uh, history and cloud history, and I felt like Docker was the next big thing. Um, Right, and I felt like I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't going. Uh, you know, OpenStack wasn't going where I wanted it to go, in terms of. Uh, and it's not like a hit on OpenStack, right? Like my goal was, I've been working infrastructure projects, you know, cloud infrastructure things for you know ten years. Um, I got onto the OpenStack bandwagon really early and said, hey, let's you know try and make it easy for other people to deploy clouds, and. It was a great, it was a stepping stone, but I felt that Docker was going to be right that next step. Um, so that's why I joined there, and then you know I just realized that at least for you know for many users, um, serverless was going to be either the next step or at least a uh, you know a parallel step that was going to be necessary for people to deploy these uh, you know the future of applications. So you kind of answered my next question, but. Uh... You know, you saw serverless as this next big thing, but uh, at that same time, Docker, it seems like it's been on just a freaking, like, rocket ship or missile, right? It's going fast and gaining huge popularity. Um, why why step out now? I mean, this is this is the time, man. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I definitely had some opportunities to do some consulting or, you know, to pick up some really sweet gigs like, you know, I, you know, I didn't have to stay at Docker even, right, in order to, you know, continue the trend of uh, working with Docker. Um, and it's something, certainly something I considered. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I was itching, you know, to, uh, in, in part, I'll admit, I was itching to go back to, you know, being an entrepreneur. Um, but, you know, beyond that, right, I mean, I can go there and I can, you know, kind of um, – you know, I guess, you know, squeeze the sponges and, you know, try and, uh, you know, benefit from Docker's success. Uh, but, you know, honestly, like, I want to do, you know, really, new, you know, new and compelling things. Uh, and I think that's what IOPipe is. Uh, you know, I'm not looking to just do more of, you know, you know, more Docker. Uh, you know, I mean, Docker's cool. Everybody loves Docker. But, you know, I did do it for two years and I'm looking for the next thing. Okay, fair enough. So, all right. Uh, how did you learn about the whole s serverless thing? Like, wh at what moment were you like, "This is this is it, man! I I need to jump on the serverless thing and drive that and build my own company." Uh, so technically, I decided to build my own company first uh, because they, you know we we kind of you know I mean when you're really early in the business you know development phase like you're there's a lot of pivoting and figuring out like what the product is going to be, uh, what we're going to do. And I started with saying, "Hey, this this IoT thing is really interesting, right?" And IoT might, you know, may or may not be the next big thing. Um, and I wanted to see, can we make it easier for developers to make 
applications talk to each other. So we have a you're building a, an IoT device. Uh, first of all, most developers today are building around uh, these, you know, uh, backend as a services specifically des designed for um, designed for IoT. There are kind of these hubs, right? So your device connects into a big hub, and the company that sold your device manages that hub, and hopefully the company keeps that product aligned long enough that it doesn't end of life it and shut down the service, and you're left with a brick. Um, and I said, can we fix that problem? Um, and it came down to, well, in order to really fix that problem correctly, we need to be able to talk just to any device. We need to be able to talk to anything and make it easy uh, for any application to talk to any other application uh, just by simply desiring to do so. Um, and, and that's kind of like this golden grail of you know cloud computing and web services that we developers have tried for a long time and never were able to really reach. And I looked at how to solve it and came to the conclusion that we couldn't just do it with APIs. We couldn't just do it with... Um, with a protocol. We had to come at it from a whole new angle. And so that was the direction I came to it from. And perhaps in my background at Docker and my background with um, even doing some serverless. And my, my startup, uh, my first startup actually had a serverless product in 2010. Um, so it wasn't a, you know exactly a new idea. And what I came down to realizing is that we need a Lambda-based architecture. Um, where we could compose applications and do use machine learning to generate new apps uh, automatically. And serverless had a huge overlap with that, both in uh, the, the use case requirements, what serverless apps demand, what they need, um, but also in the architecture. It was really, really similar. So uh, it became a really great fit. And then, of course, the hype cycle also was you know, um, a great time to be starting something you know, scoped within serverless. So uh, that's kind of, you know, that, that's where we decide to take, you know, the direction to take the product. That's awesome, man. So um, you, you made me, you just made me write down a couple of more questions. So first of all, you just blew my mind because uh, I thought serverless was like um, eight months old, right? And it was a, it was a wee baby. It was even newer than Docker. Um, and you're telling me that the serverless thing's been happening for quite a while. Um, and so I guess, um, you know, to me, explain this thing because I really thought it was new. Um, it, it, it's been around since, I mean, you even had your own business uh, doing this, you know, four or five years ago or 2010. I'm sorry, that's six years now. Um, what's going on? Like, why, why, are, why are we just now having serverless yeah. con? Why weren't we having it in 2010? Yeah. So um, in 2010, when I built a serverless product, I started going to, you know, I was telling developers about it. I was going to conferences and nobody really got it. You know, I, I talked to investors and, you know, there, there was no demand for it. Um, developers didn't understand why they would want this thing. You know, they didn't see the value and the benefit of it. Um, you know, I, I mean, even more recently, uh, just, you know, one or two years ago, uh, I was, you know, I had conversations with people about integrating, you know, a like serverless type APIs into... Um, products and they just weren't quite getting it, you know, um, and they were seeing it more as a security liability um, than anything, um, you know. It definitely weren't seeing the potential of it as a model. Um, so, you know, I mean, just like anything, right? It, it's it's easy to be early. Well, maybe it's not easy to be early, but it's definitely possible to be early. And a lot of things, you know, there's always going to be people that are early. Um, and you know, what I was doing wasn't. I wasn't the only one doing serverless things. I mean, there have been other serverless pro projects. Um, it's just kind of, you know, coming to time. I mean, Parse is a perfect example, right, of something that uh, was a serverless platform that was actually very popular. Uh, and then they just really never monetized. You know, they uh, sold to Facebook, and Facebook didn't, uh, you know, like it wasn't their model to keep it running, uh, you know, in, in that way. Um you know, which I suppose is a shame, but you know, it's, I guess it's still an open source project, and you know, now it's the right time, I guess, so you know, in the market to you know bring these products to uh, the you know bring them to market, I suppose. 
So Eric, we've we've tossed around this term serverless now for a while. Yeah. So um, what is it? <laughs> I think everyone's scratching their heads, right? They're like, what? "Okay, serverless. How is that even possible?" Yeah. So to break it down for us, like, what's the reality behind "quote unquote" serverless? Yeah. So I, I think we should address the elephant in the room, right? Which is that everybody hates the term serverless. You know, you, you look at the Twitter feed, you know, the like Twitter search, and it's just lots and lots of hate for serverless and. The worst thing is that people are complaining about serverless and they have no, and most of them don't even know what it is. And they're, they're complaining about really the term. Um, and is it know, as I'm, bad as the hoverboard? I mean, is serverless the name that we hate because it's just, it defined, it doesn't quite define it the way we want it to. Because when we had hoverboards for Christmas, they don't actually hover. And that's what made me mad about it. Is that the same problem that we have with serverless? Um, yeah, I suppose that's a good analogy. Um, now I was around in the early cloud days and I remember in 2008, 2009, um, maybe even earlier, but you know, in 2008, 2009, especially I recall, you know, cause that was like early days, Twitter too. Um, and, and at the time people go on Twitter and they would just complain consistently, you know, constantly about cloud, how cloud isn't the cloud cloud is just you know, managed services. It's just this, it's just that. And, you know, you had cloud washing. People coming up with products and calling them, you know, our cloud-ready solution or our cloud router or our, you know, um, you know, our Wi-Fi cloud, right? All kinds of, of silly things. And so part of it is this washing, right? People calling things cloud or calling things serverless that aren't. Um, and then there's also the part which is, uh, I think that really frustrates people about serverless is that they see this, oh, well, it means there's no servers. And, and obviously that's not true. There are servers. Um, it's serverless in the same way that platform as a service is serverless. It's There are servers that you don't need to worry about and that you don't deal with. They're somebody else's problem. Um, you could say this, you know, you could just say cloud. Um, in some ways, serverless is you know, the pinnacle of cloud computing. It's the, like the purest form of cloud. You t give somebody code and they run it. Um, you know, you had, um, you know, compute as a service where, you know, we generally can find, uh, define that as a VM, you know, a virtual machine or a container as a service. Um, we have platform as a service where you give somebody your application and they run the application for you. Uh, but what we're calling serverless, what serverless means within the, I, if there would, if we were to call it a serverless community, um, right? It's functions as a service. It's you instead of giving your somebody your application for deployment, you're giving them your your functions for deployment. So you don't give them your whole application. You just give them your functions, and then. Um, it, it's basically, you know, like a distributed computing model. Uh, you provide functions to Amazon or Google, Amazon, uh, not Amazon, uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, um, or, you know, some of these other providers, you know, uh, like Webtask.io and such, and they run those functions for you. And you just evoke those, uh, from your, from your application. So you deploy a function in the cloud and then your app, let's say it's local and the local app, a mobile app can run that function or those serverless functions can run other serverless functions, right? Um, and is that like functionception or like? You have to... <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, think about it, right. Like, if you know, the more serverless apps that there are, right? If you build a serverless web app, if your serverless web app has to talk to another web service, that other web service might also be a serverless web service, right? It might also be implemented with serverless tech. So it's yeah, it's going to be serverless uh, calling serverless. So. Um, so if I were to, it didn't mean to cut you off if I, but no if problem. I were to try to wrap this, you know, up, you know, when we, when people started calling things cloud, it was really a consumption model, right? And it was a consumption model of, of a whole machine. Um, and then we started having um, platforms and that was a, a deeper consumption model that was a consumption model of an application. And now you're saying there's a, an even deeper consumption model, which is a consumption model at the function level. 
And the char the way we charge is based on, you know, like the whole machine, you have to charge a certain way. It's just the way that people use it. Um, when it's a PaaS, you kind of charge based on instances and things like that. And now with function with serverless, uh, or, you know, functions as a service, you're charging based on the time it took to run the function, essentially, is that kind of Am I wrapping, I'm trying to wrap it up in a way that makes sense, maybe from a consumption perspective. Is this, I, am I absolutely. on the right path? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you get billed according to, uh, you know, the number of functions, you know, invocations, the amount of time that those functions take to run, and the amount of memory that they consume while they're running them. Um, and you get billed that way. And, you know, organizations are reporting, um, you know, very clearly, uh, you know, it seems to be across the board about 10 times savings for developers that have been moving to the serverless apps versus running, uh, you know, EC2 instances, uh, you know, 24-7. So is there, go ahead, um, Brent, did you have something? Well, no, it's, it, again, I think just kind of reiterating, this is a, it's a, it's another, it's another cost, a, a way to measure cost uh, at, a, at a more micro level, it sounds like. Is that a true statement? Yes, but... You know, I believe that it's more than that. Um, that like I think that's certainly why there's the hype cycle around it, and that's where the interest in serverless has come from. For me, I see this amazing opportunity where by turning functions into the unit of deployment, um, we can take that code and run that anywhere. Right? That the portability, like we look at. Docker containers and their portability, and we can run them anywhere as long as anywhere is Linux and and you know maybe Windows you know by the end of this year or next year, um, but uh, you know and, and those Linux containers you know like those Windows containers aren't necessarily portable to Linux and vice versa. Um, whereas with serverless code, as long as you you know have the right interpreter or the right architecture on the other system, you know like. You start worrying about whether or not the other machine is x86 or not, or you worry about whether or not um, you know that machine can actually execute Node, you know, 4.3, um, right? But you, you don't have to worry about the operating system whatsoever. So, like we talk about things like unikernels. Well, serverless is a great match for unikernels because all you're doing is depl is deploying code. Uh, you, you know, there there's no like we don't have to wrap an operating system and its files and everything that you do with the container. We just, you know, we just give you the code and you run the code. So can you, can you dig into that a little bit? We actually had unikernels on the list. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. You said it's a, a good peer to the unikernel. And we actually had somebody on a couple of weeks ago talking about unikernels. Um, if they're a, even a, a smaller iteration of an application, right. That's kind of packaged up and then you've got this serverless with it. Is this something where they're kind of a better together? Is that a symbiotic relationship, or are you saying they're very similar to each other? I think that they're symbiotic in that, I mean, eventually you need to run the serverless code somewhere, right? So you need to have an interpreter, and that interpreter needs to live in an operating system. Well, you know, Node, for instance, uh, Node.js does not require a full Linux operating system necessarily. There's no reason that you couldn't run it as a unikernel, uh, and as long as your application's a Node.js application, then you can run it on that unikernel. Um, so since functions and, and code are our unit of deployment here, they are a really strong match for things like unikernels. That uh, if you want to start looking at your application as a smaller bite-sized piece, I mean, also I think a unikernel and Docker is a separate level, I mean, it's clearly a different level of stack than serverless. Um, they're, they're not competitive in any way, really. Um, Docker and unikernels are infrastructure from a, they're not application management at all. They're infrastructure management. Serverless platform as a service is code management. I, I, I see it more like that, right? Or, or application management. So you have kind of like infrastructure management and application management. And again, they're not necessarily the same things, right? Because you can use Docker to deploy a platform as a service. You can use Docker to deploy serverless apps, at least on, you know, Amazon uses Docker in the back end, right? You know, Google and Microsoft are using container technologies on the back end of these serverless apps. Um, when you use Docker, you're, you're not using Docker necessarily to deploy apps. You're using Docker to deploy your infrastructure that runs your app. 
right? You still have to install a node inside of your Docker container. You still have to install a Java inside your Docker container. Um, so it's a way of bootstrapping in a way, right? If you consider, you know, Node or Java as part of your app, right? You use Docker to deploy your app, but it's really the thing that sits underneath of your app. Um, and serverless takes it a little step further, right? And it kind of becomes a little bit more, you know, closer to living with your app um, from the management perspective. So um, where did this did th this rise up from a need like that was in the community or or, or what drove it? And then that uh, kind of the second part of that question, was there someone that was credited with coming up with this idea, this this methodology or this architecture? Or even um, or even validating it, right? Because maybe maybe multiple people pioneered it in different ways. But who who defined it? I think is another way of asking. Yeah, I mean, you know, because like you know, pioneering. I mean, there are definitely you know some strong cases of pioneering. Uh, you know, you know, I brought this. I had a serverless solution. I know Simon Wardley's company. Uh, he had uh, some serverless features uh, something like ten years ago, and but you know the. You know the compelling validating thing was Amazon Lambda. Amazon Lambda was the was what really brought serverless to you know it, it, you know brought it into a hype right brought it into a hype cycle got developers really looking at this compelling use case. Um, you know Amazon integrated this into uh, Alexa uh, into oh I just activated my Alexa. <laughs> Let me uh. There we go. Well, yeah, she's gonna get a little airtime. That's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so they integrated it with Alexa and integrated it with uh, their uh, simple message queue and simple notification service and Amazon IoT, and you know because they realized that these platforms that they were building, you know, I, I presume they realized it because they built it, that they were that they benefited from this event-driven model. Um, because serverless doesn't have, like, this function as a service model does not have an event loop, right? So that's the difference. That's the main difference between, like, these, these functions as a service, serverless apps, and traditional apps, or, like, Docker containers, for instance, is that there's no event loop. So something is triggering your event and triggering your app to run somewhere. Um, you know, the, the event loop is handled like the most core event loop, right, which is handled by your infrastructure, says, you know, it's like an RPC. You know, wait for a request to come in to run the function. Um, but there's nothing part of that serverless infrastructure that actually does that triggering necessarily. So Amazon has those triggers built in. Google has triggers built in. Microsoft has triggers built in. So these cloud companies are seeing this as, like, I think they're innovating this and bringing this up because they saw this as a way to get developers to use more of their services and use them more efficiently, to use things like Amazon IoT um, for low cost and you know low, uh, you know to minimize resources utilizations, etc. But there's so much more that we can do with it, um, and, and that's what we're kind of figuring out as a community right now. So we uh, we did mention to you that we're going to try to um, you know bang around on the outsides of this and what is and what isn't serverless and where we can put these things to kind of help define it. Um, so, you know, our, you keep bringing things up that make me wonder about it. So my first question is you keep mentioning these are running in public clouds, right? So the Amazon, the Googles, the whoever's, uh, the big four or whatever they want to be called. Um, you know, and it's so like the four, the four cloudsmen instead of the four horsemen, maybe, um, is, are they the only ones who can do this? I mean, would I not is, I mean, obviously there's people who are creating these serverless applications and, or, or systems and then deploying them on your site to manage them for you. But could I build a serverless environment in my own office and provide that to my developers because that's the way I want to do it? Yeah, sure. So um, th there's a there's a few projects. Uh, I mean, for, first of all, IOPipe, um, you know, is a runtime for IOPipe functions, and then you can deploy those anywhere. So you can so you can write the you know the IOPipe, and then you can use our library or CLI to you know run those functions locally or to. Uh, you know, it would be really, if you want to build like an Amazon Lambda with IOPipe, you, you could theoretically do that. I mean, it would just be wrapping, you know, putting a little API around it. Um, but there are some projects that are dedicated specifically for solving that, you know, at an infrastructure level. So, um, you know, Lever OS is one. 
and OpenWhisk is another. So OpenWhisk is an IBM project. Um, and, you know, OpenWhisk is interesting. Uh, I believe that, uh, that IBM is using that uh, in production, uh, you know, making that available to developers on top of Bluemix, and they made it open source. Um, LeverOS is interesting because it's much more lightweight. It's simpler. It's, um, you know, you just take a couple of Docker containers, you can deploy them on top of Kubernetes, and you have your own little, you know, on-premise Lambda-type environment. Um, so I think that's compelling, right? Because, you know, OpenWhisk, like, it is interesting, but it's written in Scala, uh, which, you know, is, which is great, but also makes it harder for some, some contributors. And it requires, like, it's more infrastructure heavy. Like, it's, you know, it might be great for, like, an enterprise on-prem solution, but it might not necessarily be good for a startup adoption, whereas, like, LeverOS might be uh, more, like, probably the opposite, right? Maybe... And, you know, I'm kind of guessing here, right? Like, you know, I don't know what their, you know, where the product market fit is going to be, but um, it's definitely easier to get up and running for somebody that's looking to do Lever OS, um, whereas OpenWhisk has definitely had a lot of those enterprise concerns um, addressed. Uh, so you can use those. Um, and, you know, we're also looking at, you know, how IOPipe is going to fit in with this ecosystem. Okay. Um, so... You know, I think we all have this this uh, appreciation where, where Docker containers traditionally live in like kind of your platform three or cloud native apps land. But um, you know, we've also heard that there's no reason that you can't containerize um, you know a traditional monolithic application. So, what is serverless uh, better suited for? Is it better suited for like a, a microservices or 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 horizontally scaled or cloud native application or something, uh, or does it not matter? So the, the great thing about serverless is that, you know, you, you automatically get that scale, right? At, at least on the serverless side of your application. So like, I don't believe that there are going to be, uh, at least for, you know, quite a while, anything that looks like a fully serverless app that, I mean, th there might be, uh, but they're you know they're quite limited. So, uh, for example, I actually wrote, uh, and this is not yet on the Alexa skills market, uh, but I personally wrote an Alexa skill that plays chess, and it's completely serverless and completely stateless, and it doesn't talk to any services, and it only uses Amazon Lambda, um, and it plays like a grandmaster. <laughs> so you know I'm putting that through the validation, uh, the certification process now, um, but you know like there's only so much you could do with things like that, right? Like your state is the, you know, as much as you can put inside of, you know, your, your session variables, right? Um, and for something like chess, that's okay. Um, at least as long as you don't have a, you know, a terribly long game. Um, but for things like, um, you know, a, you know, real applications, uh, you know, real production applications, you're, you're going to need to store state somewhere. Uh, serverless is, generally stateless. And in fact, theoretically, my Alexa app, you know, stores state inside of Alexa, right? Like Alexa stores that state for me um, as part of its request response uh, process. Um, like it has its own session management. Um, serverless itself doesn't have, right? Like Amazon Lambda itself doesn't have a concept of state. So unless again, like you're saving state in something like cookies from web responses, you know, or, or you know, uh, your browser's local, you know, local cache, you don't have any place to store your state. So um, you're going to be looking at uh, storing that state in places like DynamoDB, inside of uh, Firebase, inside of... And, and this is like, again, where serverless washing comes in, right? Because you have things like Firebase saying, oh, well, it's serverless. Well, okay, well, you know, it, it's serverless in that it's useful for serverless apps. Um, and, you know, they have a great team, they have a great product, but it's like, it's technology that's highly suited for these functions as a service. Um, and that's where there's value. Um, but I guess to get back to the question, um, now that I derailed a little bit, <laughs> um, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> what, what, it's, what is it better suited for? I think you answered the question, actually. You, you know, it's not it's not uh, best suited for, for stateful kind of, uh, think of typical production applications that are always running and always on. This is something that is more something that's invoked to do a process, and then it kind of shuts down. Yeah. So, yeah, so this, I guess, is where I was going, is that I feel that there are, like, 
there are three kind of tiers of a serverless app. You have uh, the software, well, you have the, the serverless code itself, uh, which are these, you know, code without an event loop, just a function. It's going to run and do some stuff for you. And it's going to do things that are offered by services. Now, those services, which is kind of the second side of this tier, um, you have software as a service. So you have like your Firebases, uh, your DynamoDBs, and, you know, uh, databases of service. And then you have your microservices. And microservices, you're going to still build, you're still going to deploy them, you're still going to write them, but they will be, you know, as develop, you know, in organizations that get more and more serverless, those microservices are going to be offer the things that off, that provide and offer the state. So you want to deploy MySQL, you want to deploy a Neo4j, you want to deploy, um, you know, something that just Anything that needs to write the disk somehow and somewhere um, is going to be probably looking at using a microservice if you can't get that as a software as a service. So, you know, again, like S3, great place to store data. But if you need to, let's say you need to have Elasticsearch, well, you're going to pull Elasticsearch inside of a container, make that a micro, you know, turn it into a microservice or approach it as a microservice, and then have your serverless app talk to Elasticsearch. So we, you know, as we look at these things, right, and you go to deploy them and things like that, and you mentioned that it's these kind of things. Um, earlier, you mentioned, hey, you've got these kind of infrastructure things like uh, containers and unikernels and things like that, and then you mentioned above it kind of the software, and you mentioned uh, platforms and then uh, functions, right, and serverless. Um, and we keep mentioning Lambda, which is really, you know, essentially AWS only, right? So. Um, what about, but you did mention some other PaaS things. What about things like Cloud Foundry? Or, you know, if somebody says, well, hey, I can do the exact same thing with Mesos and, and Marathon. Uh, I mean, are they, are, they, are they serverless washing? Or where do, where do these fit together? Like, for, let's just start with Cloud Foundry. You have Cloud Foundry today, and you want to start investigating how you can benefit from serverless. What are you going to go do? Yeah, so... You know, again, the apps that you deploy on these, I mean, because these, you know, Cloud Foundry and these other platforms and services have increasingly been moving to, you know, web, uh, Webpack and Docker-based models um, or container-based models, and I think that's really strongly situate, uh, strongly suited for these highly stateful apps. Um, or apps that need to have you know, like long runtimes. Like you, you know, you can't maintain a quorum from a serverless app. Um, they don't run long enough. Like you can't do build a raft protocol. You can't do any kind of um, you know quorum-based distributed computing um, clustering. You can't do uh, anything that really directly involves state. So those things are definitely going to be. Uh, you know, continue to live on Cloud Foundry. They're going to continue to live inside Docker. Uh, they're going to continue to live on App Engine. But the parts that glue together those services, right, the consumers of those services are increasingly going to be moving to serverless architectures. Okay. Right. So I could, I mean, I could technically have an app that I've deployed somewhere in some Cloud Foundry, no matter where it is. And I could implement a function using IO pipe and it would uh, essentially leverage the existing kind of state stateful type app and then go make a simple function call for those little parts that I want to kind of charge off and, and not run on that infrastructure um, yet, you know, and so leveraging both technologies at the same time, as you mentioned, nothing could be fully stateless and certain things could not be fully stateless. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So actually that's actually, you know, touches on another, you know, key value of serverless that, we're only starting to see, you know, really people getting their minds around now is the like things like scatter gather. So if you're building an application and you're deploying it as a microservice and maybe you need only like two or three containers to run that service, but occasionally you need to run a MapReduce job and, you know, you could do something like Elastic MapReduce or something, but maybe like your, if your needs are really small, you can do a scatter gather using Lambda. You can run the. You can spawn up 10, 20, 100 functions on Lambda, process that data, uh, and collect the results. Uh, and you can do that. Like you can 
do that cloud bursting uh, on you know as needed on demand from applications that might otherwise be uh, stateful and you know running as a microservice. So now, if somebody came to you and said everything you're telling me about serverless and all this kind of stuff, it's neat. I've been doing it for years. As a matter of fact, I do it right now in my office using uh, Mesos and uh, Marathon. Is that is that a valid argument, or is that are they are they are we missing something in the comparison? Um. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it comes down to. So the closest thing to the serverless, like the the the, the closest, you know, I, I don't want to say like legacy. Right? It's not legacy, uh, but you know, the, the closest pre-serverless thing to serverless are these, uh, you know task-based runners, right? So like Garmin, um, you know, some of the work that they've been doing at IronIO, uh, that's um, our iron workers, what they call it, right? Like those architectures are the closest thing to serverless that's pre-serverless. That's that's not function as a service, but is compute on demand in that, in that sense. Um, and it's, it's like taking things like Garmin, taking things like you know, the iron workers and turning them into, um, you know, building a, as a service from that, from those concepts. So, you know, just like we had VMs before EC2. Yeah. You can like, you know, we had this in early days of cloud. People say, Oh, I'm already doing that. I'm already using VMware. Um, right. But you know, VMware is not a cloud, right? I mean, you know, in 2006, right. VMware was not a cloud, <laughs> Uh, you know, VMware was, a, you know, at the time, right, it was just a uh, hypervisor technology. And then, you know, cloud products, you know, it became a core of, you know, cloud computing of on-demand instances. But on-demand instances weren't a thing when VMware was nothing more than a hypervisor. That makes sense. So if I'm getting the Delta, um, you know, one is spinning up a, a container, putting a workload into it, running it, and then having to manage tearing it down. Um, and we're, if we go back to what you've taught us about serverless, um, it's not even having to think about that. And something else is dealing with the startup and teardown. Is, so it's really a shift of responsibility of management of the startup and teardown of that stuff. Is that a more accurate, is that an accurate delta between this kind of um, these task manager type scenarios like iron worker and, and server serverless, or have I missed another part of the game? No, no, no. I, I mean, I think that's mostly it, right? I mean, you know, if, if you're using, like, if you have an architecture where you do and can spawn Docker containers and like run them, do some tasks and shut it down. Yeah. You're pretty close to doing serverless already today. Um, the, the main difference between like the strongest difference between that and like functions of service is the unit of deployment that you're just deploying that function. You're just running that function. And that's pretty powerful because we can also start to manage the application at the function level. So like with IOPipe, we're able to look at what functions talk to other functions, what the latency of those functions are, right? Because we start moving into the ability to do things like uh, distributed tracing because we are have the architectural visible, we have the architectural visibility at a function level that we can integrate like the management, the um, architecture, the the metrics, analytics, all that at the function level. So we can do things, again, distributed tracing, um, how long those functions run, how much memory they use, uh, how they interact with other functions. Maybe we can identify what conditional statements are being hit, how frequently they're being hit, uh, et cetera, right? Um, you know, you already have this on the website with, um, oh, my, my mind is escaping me, Mixpanel, right? Mixpanel, um, you know, in a way is almost like what we can do with serverless on the web, right? Like on the on the web front end side, Mixpanel does a lot or has that kind of visibility that we're going to be able to have into our apps once we move to serverless architectures. So in, in researching serverless, AWS Lambda, I mean, bar none was in like 90% of the articles, right? So I'm like, all right, let me go dig into this a, a bit more. Um, the, the, one of the takeaways from their page is basically running code so developers can run their code without ever having to think about servers. So that got me thinking, right? Um, 
Is that a true statement? Do do I mean you know AWS went down in Sydney, for instance, uh, for for quite some time and noticeable time, and applications were down. Is do, do developers truly not have to worry, or do they have to have some relationship with ops? Right, there's that kind of DevOps mentality yeah. to understand availability zones. You know where it's being replicated. Yeah. Does does Lambda still have those? Those restrictions, I would assume it does, but how 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 can you truly decouple yourself, um, or is it smart or safe to to truly not care uh, about the you know the underlying infrastructure? Yeah, so it's it's actually interesting. Um, you know, there's so many different ways that you can implement you know a, a lambda architecture, uh, and you know I I'm seeing feed. First of all, let me just say there's no such there's no no ops right that. There is still operations. Uh, the operational challenges are different and they're changing. Um, and a lot of the problems and skill sets that developers have today around operations, um, you know, are you know some of those skills may not be as needed on operation, uh, you know, for serverless apps because like you don't need to know how to compile a kernel when you're running a serverless app. Um, like if, if that's the perspective that you're fa- taking is I have an, I have code I'm deploying it to Lambda you're never going to compile a kernel again. Um, you know, at least in the con- you know, in the scope of serverless. But there are operational concerns. Um, there was a, a great, um, and I hope he doesn't mind me bringing his name up, but uh, pa- uh, Patrick du- DuBois, uh, he uh, spoke at serverless conf, and uh, there, there's a little serverless uh, chat room, a Slack channel. And he was complaining, uh, or maybe not complaining, he was mentioning how he was running out of um, file descriptors in his Lambda contain in his Lambda functions, <laughs> right? So, like, this is an operational concern. I mean, theoretically, right, it, it's kind of, applic- you know, it, it's an application concern. But on the other hand, like, if you didn't have to worry at all about the ops or at all about the operating system, at all about, um, right, because... Like Node.js has does not care at all about the file descriptors exactly, right? The operating system cares about the file descriptors, and it gives you know the air to Node, um, or or you know your Go program, whatever. Um, so like things like file descriptors, you still have to worry about it. Um, you still have to worry about you know running out of memory. There's um, you know every Lambda architecture is also different, so. What is true for AWS Lambda is not necessarily true for Google Cloud Functions or Azure on the deeper side of things. So at the high level, right, there's very minor, marginal, minor differences about like things like call parameters, right? You change your call parameters and that code is going to run on the other cloud. That much is mostly the same. Um, Google and Amazon also give you um, like tokens that you can use to authenticate to other services from those functions. So if you run a function and run it on Google that talks to another Google service uh, and you don't provide it authentication details, you take that function and run it on, on Amazon, it's not necessarily going to just run out of the box because that function only ran on Google because it had an implicit authorization to those Google services. Um, right? That authentication um, was built in to the platform. So those are, you know, mostly superficial details. The the deeper details are things like, well, do they set the same number of file descriptors available to your process? Um, do are they running the same kernel? Um, the Amazon will reuse containers and will actually freeze them using, I believe they use Creu, which like allows you to freeze that container. So when you're not running that container for a set of time, it actually freezes those processes. It keeps them running, but in a frozen state and then unfreezes them. Uh, there might be some platforms might use the same container for to run multiple functions at once. Some of them might spawn a new container for each function, right? And it's like these start to turn into operational concerns because if they're all, if you have one platform which shares a container and it gives, you know, uh, five functions, you know, a gig of memory, and the other one spawns container, you know, a container per each function and gives each of them, you know, 256 megs of memory, right? That's a pretty big architectural difference, um, like, on the on, on the lower level, where you might start running, like, resource constraints or operating system level operational c- concerns. Um, and those 
are things that like n- n- there's nothing really addressing those operational concerns right now today. Yeah, and that's you actually kind of led into one of the questions I was going to ask you from a simple perspective. Um, we all know that there's no such thing as no lock-in. Uh, I mean, even even people you've worked with recently and not so recently have uh, you know penned a million articles about that. Um, but I am curious when you when you write something to something like a lambda or even an IO pipe, what level of um, relationship do you have to that architecture versus maybe IO pipe helps versus picking up and moving? So ah, I'm tired of lambda. I you know I just tired of t- saying the name. That's the only reason I'm choosing to move. And I'm moving over to Google. How difficult is it for me to pull up all my functions and move over there? Is it as difficult as, as something in a in an IaaS perspective, in a PaaS perspective, or is it even easier? Or is it more difficult because of how focused it is down at such a deep level um, from a specific a specificity type experience? Yeah. So yeah, I hear this locking complaint with Lambda a lot, or, or you know, serverless a lot, and yeah, I think it's really unfair and untrue. Um, you know, the only true lock-in that you have is the positional, like, arguments to your function, which, you know, are pretty minor, right? Um, you know, Amazon, uh, you know, one of those arguments is not just a callback, but is an object, and you have functions on that object. But, I mean, you know, did change a couple, you know, um, the, the order of arguments to your function, and, you know, do a search and replace for the callback function name, is really really minor, right? Um, and you know, and and IoPipe addresses that anyway. So if you use IoPipe, you don't run in, you won't run into that problem. But even even if you don't use IoPipe, it's really easy, uh, you know, to do that search and replace. So the question is, where is the lock-in? The lock-in is, or the perceived lock-in, is that because serverless apps don't have state, you need to consume, I you know, services. And there's either going to be software as a service or microservices. And if you're going to consume software as a service, you will have lock-in to that software. So if you decide that you're going to build on top of Lambda and use DynamoDB, well, yeah, you're going to have lock-in to Amazon. But that's not because you're using serverless. That's because you're using DynamoDB. Um, And that's true of your microservice architecture today. It's true of any application that you build today. Um, I suppose that you could argue there is a greater tendency of doing it with Lambda because you don't have... A lot of options, but there's nothing that stops you from building, uh, you know, a microservices architecture, and then having your serverless apps only talk to those microservices, right? So you could say take Kubernetes and deploy it on AWS, and use Amazon Lambda, and deploy that code. And then when you want to move to Google, you could do a search and replace on the Lambda code, or you know, you could be using IOPipe and just take that code and move it to Google Functions. And move your Kubernetes cluster into a Google Cloud function, or uh, sorry, Google Container Engine, and it's just going to work. Um, you know, again, like you know, you're going to have to change IP addresses, and you know, you might have to worry about things like service discovery. But like, those are all problems that you have with moving across clouds anyway. Like, the, none of that is new with serverless. Yeah, and I, I think you know when I started reading about this, you know, there were notions that. Um, you could your your code right would be so minimal because all you're doing is relying on these different functions and or services, um, which you know is obviously written for you. But I think what you've you've done is is showed the other side of the coin, which is if you if you don't want to use uh, you know these kind of pre built services, you can certainly do them on your own and make these microservices. Um, could could you use things like a, a Redis, a React, a MySQL, or something? You know, maybe uh, in that regard, or something pre-built um, that is already, you know, some pre-built function that is not specifically tied to um, to Amazon or or these other uh, cloud platforms. I think you answer the question of yes, right? Uh, yeah, I, I actually had a little trouble with that question. So, um, you know, those like you know, uh, Redis and. Uh, you know, a lot of those services you just spoke of, right? Like those are things that are going to run as microservices. So you're going to run them on top of Kubernetes or Swarm or, or you know, Mesosphere. Um, now, the function that you use to, like, if you're building a serverless app and you need to talk to Redis, you know, a big question is, well, I'm building serverless apps. My serverless apps really can't do a lot by themselves. They, they mostly accomplish things by talking to other services. So... You know, this is, uh, you know, 
right now today, but people building serverless apps, they say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to import the library uh, and start writing code that talks to the services. Like it turns into a job of writing a bunch of glue code. Um, that's the actual like that's the actual problem that IOPipe is seeking to solve. Um, we're able to run cross cloud and provide a, that cross cloud compatibility, but like our core problem that we're trying to solve is saying these serverless apps are mostly glue code. We need to talk to these various services. Why does every time that somebody wants to write a serverless app that wants to talk to Redis have to, you know, imp you know, choose to do so, import the code, figure out how to work that library and, and make it happen. So we're saying, okay, let's make a library of serverless functions that are composable and can actually run inside of other serverless functions so that you can take a serverless function from an IOPipe function library and deploy that directly if it solves your need. Or you can take a, set, a number of functions, compose them together um, as if they were libraries, and then basically glue those functions together, serverless functions glue them together, run them as one to accomplish whatever it is. So you can have a serverless function that consumes something, right? It consumes a JSON message, it consumes uh, from one service, pulls down, and then talks to another service, right? Um, and those can all be different functions and we can compose them together. Um, and what's really compelling isn't just that, we provide, that we're providing a function library that you can download those functions and consume them, but that we can do that composition even automatically. So, you know, using, you know, machine learning and using things like Markov chains, we can actually look at how developers are composing those functions and automatically compose them for you. So if you say that you need to have a function that solves a particular need, when you search for the functions, you not only get the functions that users have uploaded, but you also get compositions of those functions. So we can, like automatically resolve, uh, you know, application, you know, an application graph, and figure out what an application would look like that solves that need, compose it for you, and deliver that to you as a block of code that you can run in IO Pipe, and then you can run that inside of uh, Amazon Lambda or Google Cloud Function, wherever. Cool. So let's see if we got this right. We're we're getting towards the end, so I'm I'm gonna kind of um, see if we got this. So first of all. Um, serverless really doesn't, um, there, there's very few use cases where you can do serverless alone. So it's not like serverless is a replacement for everything else that exists. You would generally agree with that? Uh, yes, okay. that's, that's correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make, these are super simple questions, so I promise not to make you go deep. Uh, and then there are, um, there, there, one of the things I was thinking about is as far as serverless is concerned and this whole concept of lock-in, which again, we tend to agree isn't really such a thing and isn't deep. Um, it's as e if it's a simple function and you want to, you could temp you could technically just move one function at a time from Lambda over to Google and your application just keep operating the same way it was because they're really not tied to each other. Like d this second, the function can run on Lambda. And if I redeploy the function, the next time it could run on Google and assuming I properly error checked it, it'd be no big deal. It just, nobody would care. You get the result and you move on. So it's that simple to move once you've done it and you can move functions one at a time. Yeah, and, and and you know another great thing is of course that you could even run them at the same time. You could load balance them. Yeah. You know as long as those functions are actually both working, uh, it can both you know talk to the same backend you know um, you know services that they're communicating with. Uh, you could load balance between them. You could have your if you write your application in a way that's portable between Google and Amazon uh, and Azure, you could literally load balance between all of those functions. And only worry like that the whole internet you know doesn't go down, or you know that we don't lose the West Coast. <laughs> and so, and then you know, next is uh, serverless is not a off-prem only thing. There is a way to do and deliver serverless on-prem. Um, do you feel like the experiences are linear, as in uh, both 100% powerful, or is one less evolved than the other? Kind of like OpenStack versus Amazon today, you know? So. Um. I don't think that the tech, the, the serverless technology, um, you know, like for on-prem, isn't like it's not like worse technology. I mean, it's going to do the same thing, but it's definitely less mature. Amazon's been running Lambda in production for uh, what, like a year and a half, almost two years. 
Um, Google Cloud Functions and Azure Functions are still in like alpha stages. They're they're not public released yet. So, uh, you know, I would suppose that you could say that like the state at which private cloud private deployment serverless is at, it's probably not that far off from where Google and Azure are today. Uh, but neither of them are quite where Amazon is. Gotcha. And um, it would be interesting. I think maybe uh, as Azure gets a little bit further out, I think they probably could easily bolt that onto Azure Stack and put it on your site as well, um, since they're already trying to do that with Azure Stack itself. So that'd be kind of interesting to see if that actually happens. So on and off, different experiences, but on and off is fine. Lock in, don't worry about it. Um, it's not serverless replaces the world. Um, so we kind of summed that up, right? And we've also seen where serverless can coexist with your microservices environments. If you want to do Kubernetes, if you want to do Cloud Foundries, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, you could even put those and abstract your cloud providers and leverage those if you wanted to be able to move around um, and not really worry about whether or not you have a service that does that. So, um, I mean, it feels like, I feel like I kind of understand it. Have I not asked you a question or do I did I miss a topic that would really help round out the serverless conversation or did we hit it? Um, I think we covered most of the, you know, uh, most of the points there. Good. Awesome. Well, then you know what we're going to do. We're going to let you head out to lunch and uh, enjoy your day. Uh, and we're going to wrap this thing up. So Brent, you got it? Absolutely. So Eric, uh, certainly appreciate that. So we like to find out uh, when and where folks can find you if you're going to be doing any public speaking engagements. Sounds like you're at ServerConf uh, just uh, back in May. Serverless but, uh, Conf. Server, yeah, serverless conf. Server yeah, conf good. is for people who care about infrastructure, dude. <laughs> Absolutely. So serverless conf, but uh, are you going to be doing any speaking engagements at any events coming up? Where can people find you physically? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, there, there's not a lot I can say um, about my summer plans quite yet, um, but I will be speaking uh, at Velocity New York uh, in September. Uh, I know that's a way out, but uh, we have a lot of product to build and a lot of really cool stuff happening, um, you know, and we'll be definitely sharing some news about that later. Okay, awesome. Uh, about and how later? Folks... Are we, are we, look, we need to keep track of your Twitter on what day <laughs> yeah, of what yeah. month. So, um, yeah, so uh, follow, you know, you know, I'm E. Windish on Twitter. Um, IO Pipe is actually, it's IO Pipes with an S on Twitter because we couldn't get without the S. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, so I O P I P E S uh, on Twitter, and um, and of course you know we have the website and uh, the GitHub. Uh, the GitHub is actually the most interesting thing right now. So you know definitely check that out. GitHub.com/slash/IOPipe, um, and we have some cool open source things going on. Yeah, and that's, I think to point that out, right? Uh, IOPipe is is open source as, as you uh, we're developing it today, but there's an enterprise kind of support model, right? Is that the the, the goal? Um. So we are going to, I would say, let's see about that. Um, we are definitely open source. Um, we are building uh, some services, uh, which, you know, may be in part open source, um, you know, maybe even completely open source. We haven't figured out how much of the services are, you know, going to be. Uh, when I say services, like, you know, that's a, um, you know, uh, you know, service-based products, right? So, you know, uh, there will be our function library, for instance, where you can download those functions, compose those functions, uh, and you can get uh, metrics, information, lifecycle management as well. So um, like today where you have GitHub and you can get have stars on your project, you're actually going to be able to see how many people are running your function in production. Oh, cool. Share. Awesome. And then you brought up the, the, the Slack channel, right? The serverless ch Slack channel. Is that something you started? Where can we find that? Oh, I did not start that. Um, that was started by I, I didn't want to get his name wrong. Um, uh, Matt uh, Wengel, something. Uh, he's uh, the the guy from uh, Go Spartan, uh, which is a Go based serverless framework. And uh, he so he started this thing called the Serverless Forum. Uh, it's a Slack channel. Uh, you can probably find him on Twitter <laughs> and get an invite. Awesome. Okay. Very cool. And then we like to ask all of our guests, um, you know, whether it's whether it's personal or, or technology related, um, uh, what, do you, what do you follow, whether it's online or uh, maybe some of the books that you've been reading to keep up or what's a what's a personal recommendation for a book you've been reading? Oh, gosh. Um, so uh, like so, you know, 
enterprise-wise, I mean, you know, just reading most of the books everybody reads, right? Um, you know, you know, the five dysfunctions of a team. Um, you know, Peter Thiel's uh, Zero to One. You know, uh, a lean startup. Um, you know, th those are you know some of the books that you know I've read and follow. Um, you know, I have some mentors that have me, you know, reading some other books uh, that, you know, I, I'll give you my feedback once I finish them. Um, but, uh, you know, besides that, uh, I don't know, Game of Thrones, um, you know, Brandon Sanderson, uh, you know, I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big sci-fi guy. Uh, you know, sci-fi, okay. you know, some, you know, epic fantasies and stuff. <laughs> right on. Well, cool, man. So, Eric, get appreciated. So let's go ahead and shut down the hot aisle for today. But uh, everyone listening out there, please get social with us. Again, this episode was, was, was uh, crowdsourced, if you will. Uh, so we want to get more feedback, understand what you guys want to hear out there. So let us know. Hit us up on, on social media. It's pretty easy to find us at this point. Um, so with that, let's shut it down. My name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. And Eric, thanks for being on the Hot Isle. Thank you for having me.